before I begin, I wanted to um, just echo what Nathan said earlier, and happy Father's Day, thinking of my father, who I'm thankful for the fact that I was raised in a home to know Jesus, and I pray that I do the same for my son, now two weeks old. Uh, it's my first Father's Day, and so I just think of that. And so thank you to all the fathers, and to those who aren't fathers, but are spiritual fathers. Thank you for all you do. This morning, we're in the book of Ezra. Now, you may have looked at your bulletin and said, really, Ezra? Uh, even on the drive here, Judson was like, really, Dad, Ezra? I mean, uh, you may have had to consult your table of contents to find where Ezra was. You're like, I think it's around Nehemiah somewhere. Uh, I think it's an Old Testament book somewhere. Why, why Ezra? Well, I was struck by this passage as I was been reading my Bible uh, in the last several weeks, we, my, daily, my daily reading, we came across, I came across Ezra, this passage, and it just struck me. This is a powerful, powerful passage that I think is really applicable to my life, uh, and so I want to share that with you this morning. So as, we, as before, before I do, um, whenever I preach, I need to pray. I need to ask the Lord to help me, to help us hear his word. So let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to open your word right now. God, that you have not been silent, but you have spoken so clearly and authoritatively through this book. That we can know you through your word. That you, you've not left us on our own to figure out how to get to you, but you have made yourself known. And so I pray that during this time right now, that you, God, would open our eyes by your spirit to see the truth of your word Spirit, bring application to those, these hearers. Pray, God, for myself as I preach now that you would be glorified in every word that comes from my mouth, that I may divide this word as I ought to uh, and treat it with the joy but the seriousness that it deserves. So I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So having a child has made me think about what I was like as a child. I had two brothers, and in a house of three, there are fights and tension aplenty. Every day, multiple times a day, fights over the smallest things. And my parents would break up the fights, and they'd say, you, you cannot do this thing. You cannot go outside. You can't have dinner. You can't do this until you apologize, until you say, I'm sorry. I didn't want to say sorry to my brother. He was the one who started it. But eventually, after an hour in my room, I'd be like, I really want to go outside and play with my friends. I'd better just say sorry. I'd better just say it. So I'd trudge upstairs and go to my brother, and my mom's in the room, and say, I'm sorry. Very sincere. Wholeheartedly confessing and apologizing. Maybe you were like that too. Maybe if, you, if you're a parent, you've heard your kids say, I'm sorry, in a tone that indicates they are not sorry whatsoever. Or maybe you yourself have said this in a similar way. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you took it the wrong way. I'm so sorry, it won't happen again. But do you ever notice how oftentimes, in both those cases, 
when you say it won't happen again, that very thing you just apologized for happens again. Maybe in the next 30 minutes, 30 minutes later, you find yourself happening again. Or when I would go apologize to my brother, an hour later we'd be outside playing, and again I'd have to, and I would do the exact same thing to him that I just apologized for. What's, what's the disconnect there? That I've, I've just apologized, I've said I'm sorry, but the thing that I just apologized for is happening again. Or in the phrase, you know, if, if someone says this to you, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, that won't happen again, I promise. Has someone ever said those words to you only for that same thing to happen again despite what they just promised you? Or maybe you have said those words to someone only for that thing to happen again and again and again. Perhaps you reacted in cynicism or sarcasm to something your spouse said. You should not have responded that way. In that moment, your remorse is real, I think. That when you say, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. You really do feel remorse. You really do feel sorry. But yet, later that same day, you make the same kind of comment. You react the same way. What is going on there? There's a disconnect between what you're saying, how you're feeling about it, and what happens. Many in this room, and myself included, find ourselves with some kind of sin that lingers in our hearts and rears its ugly head from time to time, time and time again, despite the fact that we know it's sin, that we continue to do that thing. We feel genuinely remorseful for it, but we continue to do it again and again, and we find ourselves saying, how, did this, how does this keep happening? Why do I keep doing this? We know it's killing us. We know it's abhorrent to a holy and a pure God to do it, but yet you find yourself here again saying, it's happened again. I acted that way again. I did that thing again. Maybe it's a pornography addiction that you can't seem to break, a temper that flares up far too easily and frequently. Maybe gorging yourself on food to excess on a frequent basis. Maybe it's a tongue that finds lying easier than telling the truth. You've just lied again. You've just clicked on that website again. And you feel guilty. You really, really do. I urge you, I warn you this morning, the love of Christ Jesus, that sin pattern is killing you. And so we can't just shrug it off and say, well, it's not that bad. You know, it could be worse. I could be doing X, Y, or Z. You say, Trevor, to me this morning, Trevor, I, I want to get rid of that sin, this habitual sin that's in my life that just keeps popping up again and again. I want to get rid of it, but it's hard. It's hard. I, don't, I, I can't do it. There's a disconnect here between your genuine remorse over it and then what, how you, you find yourself continuing to do it. Those things don't necessarily work together. What is the disconnect? What is the disconnect between those things? Because clearly the circuit is broken somewhere. So this morning I want to suggest that the disconnect lies in the fact that oftentimes our repentance in that moment is not authentic. Our repentance in that moment is not authentic. We want to talk the talk of repentance, but we don't want to walk the walk of repentance. We hedge our repentance. 
In short, there's a part of us that likes our sin too much to do the uncomfortable work of killing it. And in chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra, we encounter a people who have sinned in a way they've sinned in the past, they've sinned again, and they will sin again in the future. We encounter this remnant of the people of Israel returning from exile in Babylon, coming back into Jerusalem. And as they rebuild and reestablish a new life there, they have to reckon with a reality. Some of them have sinned in a major way. What do they do? How do they respond? The remnant led by their leader, Ezra, responds in what I call an authentically repentant way. They don't make excuses. They don't downplay what has happened. They get down into the hard, painful work of repentance, and they deal with the consequences. So what does authentic repentance look like? That's what we're going to be unpacking this morning. What does authentic repentance look like? How can you know that when you've repented of a sin, it's genuine? How can, we, how can you know that you're, you're repenting in an authentic way? You're not hedging your repentance. You're not going halfway, but you are diving in and repenting fully. This morning, we'll look at four requirements for authentic repentance. Four requirements for authentic repentance. The first one is this from verses 1 through 4 of Ezra 9. It's God-given recognition of sin. It's a God-given recognition of sin. So quickly, let's situate ourselves in the Bible. What is going on in Ezra? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah are books that are together. They're meant to be read together. They're two separate books for us, but they're meant to be read together. The story of the remnant of Israel returning to the land after their exile in Babylon. So if you remember, if you know your Bible stories of the people like of Daniel and times like that, the Israelites are, have been in exile in Babylon, and now they are returning to the land of Jerusalem. They have been freed. They're reestablishing a life there. After all this time in exile, they've come back. God has clearly shown his faithfulness to his people. He's brought them back out. And Ezra is the account of the how they get to Jerusalem and the who gets to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of genealogies, there's a lot of noting who's there, and note how they end up getting this. How do, they, how do they leave Babylon and get into Jerusalem? And our chapters this morning, 9 and 10, are at the tail end of the book. This is the last of the book of Ezra, and the story of Nehemiah picks up where Ezra leaves off. So just so you have that situated in your mind before we dive down into it. Let's just read the first two verses of Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. That's a mouthful. Ezra, so if we find in the beginning of Ezra 9, after these things, draws us to Ezra 8. What's happened in Ezra 8? Ezra 8 is, Ezra has led the people out of Babylon, they have journeyed to Jerusalem, and they have arrived in Jerusalem in chapter 8. They offer sacrifices, thanking God for the journey, and now a few months later we get chapter 9. So they've just arrived in Jerusalem, a couple months later, what happens? Well, the officials come to Ezra and they say, Ezra, we've got a problem. Well, what's the problem? Well, while in exile, it seems, 
some men of Israel, the Israelites, have married women from these various foreign nations. So the problem is that intermarriage between Israel and these other nations. Now, before we go further, I want to address briefly the big deal about intermarriage. For us, it's not a, it does not seem like a big deal. This is not a thing that we encounter. So why would this have been such a problem here? Well, first and foremost, this kind of intermarriage is a clear violation of Deuteronomy 7, which the Lord instructs them to not get married to all these foreign nations, including actually the, the nations mentioned in Deuteronomy 7 are some of the exact same nations here in Ezra chapter 9. I don't think that's coincidental. They have, so the Israelites have clearly married women of foreign nations when God had told them in Deuteronomy, don't do it. That's the problem. Now, the, the Old Testament does not completely forbid intermarriage. If you, if you know your Bible, you might, your mind might go to someone like Boaz and Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's not an Israelite, but that, is, that, is, that's, but that marriage is condoned. The line of David comes out of Ruth. So, that, so how, does, how does this connect? I think that the difference is that when it, in the case where it involves a compromise of faith or practice, it's an issue. God says, have no other gods before me. In the case of Ruth, Ruth worshipped Yahweh. Yahweh was her God. She might have been a Moabite, but Yahweh was her God. And in the case of all of these women of these various lands, the, the, the implied thing here is these women do not follow Yahweh. They follow after foreign gods. They are pagans. And God will not share his glory with any other god. He does not want his people, the remnant of his people, to be associated with pagan foreign gods. And husbands joining with foreign wives will produce more than just children. When an Israelite husband is married to a Canaanite wife, it produces an emotional connection. He'll be inclined to start to favor a foreign god, to start worshiping a foreign god, to, to do some sort of mixture between the two, sort of conflate Yahweh and the Canaanite gods together. And Yahweh says, no, I will have no part of that. I will have no part of sharing my glory with these false gods. He does not want to share space in your heart with any other god. In verse 2, it talks about the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. Israel is God's chosen people. He does not want his holy people who worship him alone to mix themselves with foreign gods. He has not made a covenant with the Canaanites. He made covenant with the Israelites. So the men who take foreign wives are mingling the people of God with paganism. Israel is called to be a pure people. And even one man who brings in a pagan foreign wife into the community adds a drop of that impurity to the community and suddenly it is no longer pure. And so this cannot be allowed to stand. It is a clear violation of the law And so this is the issue. The righteousness, the purity of the people is coming into great question. God has been loyal to them, but they have not been loyal to him, breaking his commandments. And I want to note this before we go on further. What about today? 
intermarriage as this relate to today, want to make clear that this, is, this sort of intermarriage text here is not an excuse for racial prejudice. This is not an issue of the people. It's an issue of the worship. It's worship. It's not about the people themselves, but the gods they worship. But the New Testament commands believers not to intermarry with those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.14 speaks to this, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So that is a practice we should still maintain today. If you're considering someone to marry, and if you know this person is not a believer, does not confess Jesus Christ, it is not wise to to marry marry them and and, and hope they'll become a Christian when you get married. But you you, you ask me, what if I'm already married and my spouse isn't a believer? Is is God telling me in Ezra 9 to to divorce them? By no means. By, By no means. The Bible also says in 1 Corinthians 7 that your unbelieving spouse may be sanctified through you. You are the way that your unbelieving spouse may come to know the Lord. You are a great witness and testimony to them. So you are the means by which God may save them. But in Ezra 9, the people of the remnant recognize there's a problem. How did they come to recognize this was a problem? How did they know? Because if you, if you think about this, these men had clearly been practicing intermarriage for some time and had no problem with it. They got married. They didn't think anything of it. They've been going on. They had, some of them have kids with these women. What changed? Why now? Why are, there, why are the officials bringing this to Ezra now? Well, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we get a taste of this. We, we, I, what likely is going on here is that in Nehemiah chapter 8, it talks about how Ezra gathered the people and read the law aloud to them for seven days straight. He's, he stood up on a podium and just read the law, read their, what, the, what they had of the scriptures out loud to everyone. And the people of this time, they weren't like us today in the sense that we have a Bible right here. There are Bibles in every pew. If you want one, you can grab one, take it home for free, and read it. The copy of the law would not have been inside of every single home for these people. So they, like, what likely happened is the people heard Ezra preach the law of Deuteronomy chapter 7, and they responded to it. They hear the, 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 the command to not intermarry, and the law convicts them. They realize, they, their eyes are open, and they say, I'm in, I'm in sin. We are in sin. This can't be allowed to continue these men would have continued to live in sin apart from God opening their eyes to their sin through his law. This is why I say it's a God-given recognition of sin. They recognize their sin because God has allowed them, has opened their eyes to see their sin through his law. This is what God's word does. This is what God's word does. It opens our eyes as we read it, as we listen to it read and preached, Even this morning, I trust the Holy Spirit is applying the word to our lives. It is bringing conviction. It is bringing clarity to your mind. It is hope God is opening your eyes through his word to see the depravity of your sin and the gloriousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 3 and Hebrews 4 both speak to this point. 
that through the law comes knowledge of sin and the word of God divides us. It exposes us. Our sin is laid bare before his word. And this is part of why we as Christians should prioritize the word of God. We should welcome this dividing work of the Spirit. We are ready to acknowledge our sin. We don't have any need to hide our sin. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You have access to the Father to receive forgiveness and grace. You don't need to hide your sin anymore. And we want the Spirit to pierce our hearts and convict us of sin. We want the opportunity to repent. And what a gracious gift of God this is. Just think about this. That it is a gracious gift of God that you know that you sin. Imagine if you were blind to your sin. If you did not know that you sinned. It would be a dangerous place to be. Because you, you, you would sin. We're sinners. We're all human. But if you didn't know it, what, what would your hope be? What would your plan be? You'd have no way of knowing you're sinful. But God, in his kindness, has given us a recognition of sin. He's filled us. If you're in Christ, he's filled you with his spirit. That you know, you see your sin for what it is. To be blind to your sin is a dangerous place to be. So if you're here this morning and you say to yourself, I don't know the last time I sinned. It's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. Examine why you feel that way. So next time you feel convicted about sin, I encourage you to praise God. Thank him for the fact that he's given you eyes to see your sin and find forgiveness. And how should we feel? How should we feel when God gives us this recognition of sin? Well, Ezra goes on to recognize this sin for the tragic and grievous thing that it is. He doesn't just tear his cloak. He also tears his tunic. He tears both the outer garment and the undergarment as well. So Ezra, upon hearing of this sin, doesn't just shrug it off, doesn't just say, oh, that's, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll put that in the back of my mind. He immediately sits completely desolated, drained and appalled by this news. It's weighing on him super heavily. There's those around him who join him in this grief. No one is saying a word, just sitting in silence. I think these men and women recognize sin properly. When God gives us recognition of sin, the proper response is to treat it with gravity, to take it seriously. You have sinned against a holy God. That is a grievous thing. That is a terrifying thing to have been impure before a pure God. So we cannot just shrug it off. So when God gives us recognition of sin, we do well to listen to, to, listen to the words of Ezra to see what he's doing. I'm not asking you to tear your garments. I'm not asking you to pull your beard hair out. I can't. But to sit and consider your sin for a second. Don't just brush it off and say, I'll I'll move on. But think about what it is. Because when you start thinking about what it is, you can see the gloriousness of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins on the other side. So the first requirement for authentic repentance is a God-given recognition of sin. The second requirement for authentic repentance is a humble confession of sin. A humble confession of sin. So the news is in. There's sin in the midst of the people, 
Ezra's sitting there, silent. He's missing a few beard hairs. Ezra's next moves communicate such humility from the very beginning. What he does, his bodily posture communicates humility. He falls on his knees and spreads out his hands to say, God, I need you. We need you. We've sinned. I'm surrendering to you. I can't stand before you. He communicates humility there, but also in the way he prays. I don't know if you caught on to this as Danny was reading it earlier, but it struck me that Ezra is not one of the men who has married a foreign wife. He's not guilty of this sin. He's not the one who's done it. But his prayer is not like, God, forgive those people. I can't believe they did what they did. Please forgive them. One word pops up a lot in his prayer. It's the word our, O-U-R. Plural, us. Our sin. For, if we just, a couple places. Verse 6, our iniquities have rise, risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Our iniquity. He's lumping himself in with the community. He's not placing himself as higher than everyone else. He's saying, I'm a part of this. I'm a part of the community that let this happen. I'm a part of the people who, when this happened, we just shrugged it off and let it go, let it continue. He includes himself as part of the faithless people. So humble of Ezra. In his, so in his prayer, this is a prayer of confession to God. He cries out to God. And I want to note a couple things. The first part is Ezra's recounting Israel's history. How God had, he, much of their history is due to their iniquity. That God has punished them for their sin. But at the same time, God has shown them great favor. They still exist. Despite all of their sin, they're still there. They're not wiped out. God has been faithful to them, merciful to them. They have returned from exile. They're back in Jerusalem. And so how has the remnant responded to God's kindness in this way? Have they been faithful? Have they been faithful to God as he's been faithful to them? No. Verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. God made his commandment abundantly clear. And they have rejected those abundantly clear commandments. And Ezra, note, does not make a single excuse. He doesn't say, God, there were pretty slim pickings back there. I mean, we had, we had, we had no choice. I mean, what, what, what were we supposed to do? No, he makes no excuses. He is specific about what commandments they've broken, and he doesn't try to make an excuse to God, be like, God, if you only knew what we were dealing with, you would understand why we did what we did. I love Ezra's statements of confession because I think they're powerful and appropriate for us today. When God gives you recognition of sin in the moment when you feel that prick of conviction in your heart, Say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. How should we respond? I think a couple things that Ezra says would be great practices for us. Verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? And then again in verse 15, 
Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Again, Ezra is not making excuses. He is not finding a way around it. He's not hedging it, being like, I know it was bad, God, but really it wasn't that bad. I mean, if, if, you, thought, if you thought about it, you'd understand that it wasn't as bad as it looks. No. He says, what does he say? God, we are before you in our guilt. We can't even stand before you. In our guilt, we are laid bare. We are down on our knees. We have nothing to say. We have no excuse to give. You're right. We're wrong. And that's what confession is. Confession is saying the same thing about God, about your sin. Where you admit that your sin really is as bad as God says it is. Because really, what can you say to God? Could you, could you give an excuse to God that would make him change his mind about your sin? That he'll look past, okay, uh, Trevor, I'll look past that sin because you explained the extenuating circumstances behind it. I see what you were doing. You had no choice in the matter. I'll look past that one. Sin is sin. No matter what kind of excuse you can give, no matter what kind of extenuating circumstances were around it, to violate God's commandments is to violate God's commandments. And so authentic repentance requires that we humbly and honestly confess our sin. We don't skirt the issue. We don't blame other people. We don't blame our environment. We don't blame anything else. It's those half-hearted confessions I talked about earlier where you say things like, I'm sorry if you took that the wrong way. I'm really only sorry I got caught. Look, I know what I did was wrong, but what they did to me was way worse. The person may have sinned against you, but you are responsible for your response. You're not responsible for what they did to you. You're responsible for your response in that moment. And so authentic repentance goes before God, echoes these words, we're before you in our guilt, we can't stand before you because of this. But want to note, for you, Christian, there is great good in confessing your sin. 1 John chapter 1 says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you will agree with God and admit to God, agree with God and say, God, I agree with you. That sin is just as bad as you says it is. I'm not making excuses. I'm not here to defend myself. I'm here to confess it to you. God is not looking at you and saying, how dare you? How dare you come and tell me that? He is saying, come to me. Confess your sin to me. I already know it. I already know everything. Come before me. I will forgive your sins. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, not just some of your unrighteousness, not just the really bad unrighteousness, but cleanse you from all your unrighteousness if you will come and confess it to me. So there is joy in confession. As we know, when we present our confession to the Lord, when we say, God, yeah, you're right, I sinned. I should have done it. We don't have to fear the punishment of God. He will forgive and he will cleanse. And so this, this morning, I want, us to know, I want you to know, non-Christian, 
that if, do you, I want to ask you, do you recognize that you're a sinner? Do you recognize that your sin is against a pure and a holy and just God who will absolutely punish sin to its full extent? Are you aware of that? Do you know that to be true? He will punish every sin in a just way. Do you recognize that you are alive today because God in his kindness towards you has punished you less than you deserve? And if you die without believing in Jesus and repenting of your sins, you will die in your sins and receive the full eternal punishment for those sins. I want that to be abundantly clear this morning. In that moment, when you stand before the holy and awesome creator God of the universe, what excuse will you give? What will you say? God, I I know, but my life was just really hectic. I know, God, but you don't know my life. No. There will be no excuse you can give. So I plead with you this morning, be reconciled to God. That pesky feeling in your heart after you sin that you just are tempted to shrug away. Or even now as, as, I, as you hear me say this and your heart is tempted to just push it away and ignore it and think better thoughts. Think this guy, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't be reconciled to God. Repent and be cleansed. Confess and be forgiven. Find the abundant mercy that's in Jesus Christ. I plead with you to find it this morning because you will find abundant grace and mercy in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want that for you more than anything. So this morning, humbly confess your sin before him. And that's the second requirement for authentic repentance. Third is is decisive action to deal with sin. Decisive action to deal with sin. So Ezra prays, he confesses the sin of the people to the Lord. And what happens? Well, the people come to him in Ezra chapter 10. In verse 2, one man speaks up, and and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who who tremble at the commandments of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So the people of the remnant don't shrug off sin. They don't ignore it. They don't push it to the back burner. They say, we need to deal with this right here and right now. They want to renew a covenant with God. They want to put away, send away all the foreign wives and children. They want to take action. They want to deal with sin. So what happens Well, Ezra calls all the people together. All the people of the remnant, wherever you are, come to this place. There's a steep penalty if you don't come. If you don't come to this meeting, basically you're going to get all your stuff taken away from you. It's that important. We need to deal with this, and you need to be there. It's a pretty decisive action. So all these people are gathered, and they formulate a plan for how they are going to deal with this sin. And because of the delicate nature of this problem, it's going to take time and effort to work through this. So you think think about what's going on here. This involves people's families. This involves wives and children. 
This is a really personal thing. This, can't, this kind of undertaking of sending off wives and children cannot be taken lightly. The plan is drastic, but it is clear the men who have taken foreign wives must remove those wives and the children from them, send them on their way to their native land. Now, as that strikes us, that's kind of tough to hear. They have to send away their wives and their children? I mean, where will they go? I mean, and we know God hates divorce. He takes no delight in it. So what's happening here? Why is separation of families the proper God-honoring thing to do here? Well, I, I want to say this, this. I think this is an exceptional circumstance. This is not something prescriptive. We don't take from Ezra what we need to do in our lives today in this regard. In fact, the New Testament says, again, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't get divorced. But you, you might be the person that, that helps them get saved. So this is not an example for us to follow necessarily, but it is an instruction of the lesser of two evils had to be chosen in this manner. The glory of God, the purity of the remnant had to be preserved. So there was a tough choice that had to be made. This kind of sin has consequences and it is being dealt with. So everyone who has married a foreign woman has an appointment with the elders, the judges of his town to sort it out. In this commission, this group works together for three months, bringing the men who have married foreign wives together and, for, and they, 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 have an, they have a discussion, an appointment where they talk through it. What's it going to look like? Will that wife and their child, can become, will they trust Yahweh? Will they make Yahweh their God, perhaps? So all these things happen for three months and by the end of it, they have removed all of the wives and children from their midst. In verse 17 of chapter 10, And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So this was no doubt a very painful process. There's no doubt about it. I mean, can't, can't imagine that. It was no doubt painful, but it was decisive action taken without hesitation. They didn't say, let's mull over what to do for a few months. They said, here's the problem. Let's deal with it. And that too is instructive for us of how we respond to sin in our lives. After we have confessed sin, we must take decisive action to deal with it. This is a non-negotiable part of authentic repentance. We confess and then we take concrete steps to remove that sin from our lives. And this part is vital. Because confession alone equates to just kind of feeling bad about sin. You can feel bad about it, but I'm not, I don't feel bad enough to do something about it so that I never do it again. I said it this way. The road of habitual sin is littered on every side by sincere confessions of sin that didn't go any further. The road of habitual sin is littered on every side by sincere confessions of sin that didn't go any further. I have an illustration here that I think hopefully will, get, will make this clear in our minds. So imagine you're walking, you, in front of you is a long wooden bridge made of hundreds and hundreds of single planks. And this bridge goes over a deep, deep chasm that you cannot see the bottom of, pitch dark. 
most of those planks can easily support your weight. So you walk along the bridge one plank at a time. On each board, there's a small piece of your favorite candy bar. As you step on each board, you collect piece of candy after piece of candy after piece of candy. And it feels really good. Hey, you've gotten free candy. But there's danger lurking on this bridge. You see, one of the boards on the bridge in front of you is rotten. Rotten to its core. When you step on that one plank, it will not support your weight. You will plunge into the chasm. But the rotten wood board looks exactly like the regular wood board. So you have no way of knowing which, how many boards you have until you stop on the rotten one. So as you go and you collect the candy on this bridge, with each board you step on, you think to yourself, I should probably turn around. I, I mean, I, I, there's, a, there's a rotten board out there somewhere. But what are the chances that the next rotten board is, the next board is the rotten board? What are the chances of that? And what if there isn't really a, a rotten board out there after all? At some point, as you walk along this bridge, you have to stop. You must turn around. If you step on the rotten board, there's not going to be time for you to turn around as you plunge into the chasm. So how far will you go on this bridge? Now perhaps you think, well, I wouldn't go on it at all. That candy's not worth it. Let's bring this into our lives here this morning. How far on the bridge of sin will you walk? Every step you take on a new plank is another time falling into sin. The candy is the quick hit of excitement or dopamine you receive from the instant gratification of that, of, your, of that sin. Do you recognize the danger of what you're doing, confess your sin, and turn around and remove yourself from the bridge? Or do you say, oh, that didn't hurt anything. I could, I, I'll, I'll go for one more. I'll go for one more. And you do that time and time and time again. Brother or sister, sin is deadly. It destroys you and it kills you softly. It lures you towards taking another step. Sin tells you, one more won't hurt. One more time won't hurt. But you do not know when the rotten plank will come and you will face the painful, disastrous consequences of your sin. Do you ever hear the stories of another Christian who has fallen into grave sin? Maybe it's been revealed they've been committing adultery for over a decade, or they've committed rampant fraud with their business. And, and you say in your mind, how is that possible? This, I thought this was a good Christian man or a woman. How could this happen? Well, time and time again, when they were faced with the decision to turn around or step onto the next plank, the candy just looked too delicious to pass up. They didn't think the next board would be rotten. And they fall into the chasm and disastrous consequences of their sin. And I think this is the disconnect between our sincere confessions of sin and our ability and inability to kill sin. We confess sin but we fail to take the decisive action to remove it from our lives. It's the porn addict who laments how they continue to fall, but they take no steps towards accountability. It's the glutton who continues to keep the junk food close by. 
It's the liar who doesn't memorize scripture about being truthful. Because in our hearts, we like that sin more than we let on. We want to talk the talk of repentance and confess it with our mouths, but it's too painful to live it out. And so we stop halfway. So what matters is how we will respond to sin. What action will we take? We will not stop sinning. If you take action, you you may struggle again. You may fall again. But what matters in the moment is how you respond. What action will you take to make it harder to step onto that bridge next time? So I ask you today, what steps are you taking to decisively remove sin from your life? What direct, concrete, actionable steps are you taking to remove sin from your life? Be specific about what steps you will take. As you notice a particular sin to creep up in your life, time and time again, I I find myself getting angry more and more often. What will you do to to cut that out of your life? What action will you take? Take decisive action like those in Ezra 10. So the third requirement is decisive action to deal with sin. The fourth one, and finally, is brief. Specific remembrance of past sin. The fourth requirement is specific remembrance of past sin. Verses 18 through 44, painstaking detail. Ezra recounts the names of the men who married foreign wives. I love genealogies like this. They're full of great names. But you, this is not a list you want to be on. These, we don't know anything about these men except for the fact that they sinned against God. And for all of Israel's history, all these men would be known for is sinning against God. How would you like to be remembered for all of Jewish history for this? Your name listed here. The only thing you, people know about you is your sin. It's hard to know exactly why Ezra puts this in here for us. But my conjecture is this. Whenever the law is read in future times, the sin of intermarriage will be well recounted. People will remember this sin and the people who did it. Those men's names will be there. And so this list may serve as a remembrance for the painful consequences these men had to endure because of their sin. It's a reminder for future generations of the sin of previous generations. So future generations can learn from this. And I think this application is is true for us today, too. When you have recognized your sin, when you have confessed it, when you have taken decisive action to deal with it, those experiences should serve as reminders to us and warnings for when we are similarly tempted in the future. When you're tempted to do that thing again, you say, "I, I know how that ended up last time. I know what I did last time to help me combat that. I know last time what I had to deal with when I faced, when I fell for that. And so I'm not going to do that again. I think remembering past sin and recounting it in this way can be helpful for us to be faithful in the present. So this morning, we've looked at four requirements for authentic repentance. We need God to give us a recognition of sin. We need to confess our sin. We need to deal with our sin. We need to remember our past sin to help our present and our future selves avoid sin. And we live lives of repentance. Authentic repentance can happen in seconds. When you think, when when the conviction strikes your heart, 
immediately you can confess it. And immediately you can say, okay, I'm going to remove myself from this situation. I'm, t- I, I'm, I'm getting angry. All right, let me just remove myself for a second from this. We repent of our sins multiple times a day because we have need for repentance multiple times a day. And for you, Christian, here this morning, this kind of authentic repentance can be a joyful thing. I dare say it should be joyful in some respect because when we repent, we're course correcting. We're course correcting back to the true source of joy. We're leaving our broken cisterns that can't hold any water and we're coming back to the true source of joy, God our Father, knowing that he welcomes us back with arms of mercy and grace, ready to receive us, the prodigal, back home again and again, time after time. So rest this morning knowing that if you will authentically repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, there is abundant mercy and grace for you. Let's pray together. God, thank you for that, that truth, that reality. That you are not a God who, when we sin and we confess it to you, you are angry with us. You are, you are angry with us. But God, you, there is abundant mercy and grace in your arms. God, I pray for my friends here this morning that we would authentically repent, not go halfway, not stop at confessing the sin, but taking decisive action to deal with it. And I pray for those who may not know you in this room today. For the first time, they may confess their sins and believe in you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.